We're going to have a Q&A. We did get some really great questions, I thought anyway, you know, ahead of time. But you guys will also have some as well live here for which you can make your way to the back and see Sheldon on my left or John Vereen on my right. And uh, you can sort of have lines form there. We'll see if we can do something of a balance of the questions that came in uh, versus the questions that uh, will be asked here. Well, we want to start out with uh, just no- observing that the uh, Friday was a very big day. Yes, it was. And uh, with the overturning of, of Roe v. Wade. <clears throat> And we just want to get uh, thoughts and reactions in the wake of of that decision. Yeah, I have to say it's surprising. I mean, it's not surprising because we heard this leak about two months ago or whenever it was. So we we sort of had an inkling that it was coming. But in the big picture, though, I have to say it surprises me. I really did not think that the Supreme Court would overturn Roe versus Wade in my lifetime. Uh, Mm. So I'm glad they did. It's a, it's a great common grace. Uh, I don't think it's a final victory. And, and I think, as you see on the news, the forces of people who are lobbying for the continuation of free abortion on demand, even at taxpayer expense, they're going to marshal their forces. And this is a battle we still continue to need, need to fight, maybe more than ever. But for the moment, I think it's it's a good thing to celebrate and be thankful to the Lord. It's certainly His mercy. I mean, if you look at the, the current regime that's in power in the United States, the Democratic Party owns the presidency and both houses of Congress uh, and everything but the Supreme Court at the moment. So it's surprising. And as I think it was Donald Trump himself, someone said, someone asked him about it, and he said, this is, this is God's doing. Hmm. He's not right very often about mm. stuff like about spiritual things, but uh, he was right about that. Yeah. And, and uh, so I'm thankful to the Lord for it. Yeah, me too. You know, it's true to say that the, the fight is not over, especially in California. I, you know, I, I was hearing that California, Oregon, and Washington are like making a coalition to be the states that people can flee to for abortions, you know, if their state is no longer... Uh, outlawing or no longer uh, allowing it. I, I think the, the reality is w- it w- whatever pragmatic uh, results are going to happen from this decision, and there are some, I think like 17 states already close to that have had trigger laws in place, which when, when Roe fell, there was, just, there was legislation in place to effectively outlaw abortion in like I say, but somewhere between 12 and 17 states. And so that certainly has had an effect on our nation. But here in California, right, it doesn't have much of, an, of a helpful effect. Well, in fact, it's the opposite because yeah. now all They're those people will travel here. And I heard whisperings that uh, California, although this, the state government is bankrupt, they're offering to pay people come to California to get abortion. So I think you'll see an increase in it in our community. And yeah. But again, the, why we need to fight harder than ever. But the reality is, the mercy is, I mean, I've, I've long thought that there is no possible way that God can bless America while we have a federally protected, quote-unquote, right to murder your unborn children, right? That, that, that's just like a bridge too far. It's just such obvious wickedness to codify, you know, such barbaric practices into, you know, court precedent and, you know, what the Democrats are trying to do, even codify it into law, that it, it's, it's just, how, how could you not court the judgment, the, the, the fierce judgment of God? And so the fact that there is not that precedent any longer, right? That murder is not protected federally uh, any longer, even though it's protected in many states. That is a good thing. And, and it just should not be the case that such a, a law or a, press, a court precedent allow, pretend that there is a constitutional right to, to murder one's own child in the womb. And so we, we rejoice with that. You hear a lot, I mean, Twitter and the evangelical blogosphere and social media has been, you know, awash in the last couple days with commentary on this. And one of the things that you see is you see a lot of people saying things like, okay, well, now we've got to really redouble our efforts to help women. And and some even calling for 
you know, what are basically socialistic, you know, uh, care policies as a result of uh, the legislation. How, how do we react to those things? It was the government in the first place that was so determined to make it easy for women to kill their children. I don't really trust the government, and in fact, the whole welfare system has been corrupt for years. I don't trust the government to do a good job with that kind of thing. And the fact is, evangelicals have been doing that for decades, and Grace Church has been involved with a crisis pregnancy center here locally as long as I can remember. And so rather than lobby for socialistic reforms that would and I don't understand why any Christian would do that in the first place. Charity is not uh, one of the primary responsibilities of government. That's our responsibility as individual Christians. And, and um, I, I, I <clears throat> firmly believe that the church and even parachurch organizations can do a much better job caring for women in crisis pregnancies than the government ever will. So that's part of my response. Uh, also, it offends me that certain high-profile leading evangelicals who ought to know better use rhetoric like that that implies somehow that the church has not been doing its job up to this point. Grace Church certainly has been involved. In fact, here in Grace Life, we have, I think Sheldon coordinates the group that goes to the, uh, pr- uh, to the abortion clinic at least two times a week, right? Friday and Saturday every and morning. There have been, been guys doing that for more than a decade, some of them every single week. And it's, a, it's not a high-profile ministry. It's not something that we recognize and celebrate maybe as often as we should. But if you're really interested in that, you should join that group that goes down there. And, uh, and they speak to and preach to and plead with young women who are coming there to have their babies killed and also, to, uh, I, I, was, I, I was with him recently, and it surprised me. Some of the guys that do that every week know, personally know, the medical professionals who work in these clinics by name, mm. and then drive up and get out of their cars, these doctors who perform abortions, and our guys will speak to them and preach to them by name. Right. Uh, if you want a, a, a really effective... Uh, way to deal with abortion on the front lines and experience what it's like even to be persecuted for your faith, go down and join those guys sometime. Yeah, and talk, uh, talk to Sheldon, talk to John Vereen, talk to me. Um, we would love to get you qualified and equipped to do that. But uh, also there's the uh, Crisis Pregnancy Center that we support. And every, every year we have a major fundraising campaign for them. Two, uh, really. I mean, they, they have a banquet that is usually hosted in this room where they are able to solicit donations. I mean, they usually raise in the neighborhood of $175,000 on that night. And I don't know the statistics on how many babies they've saved over the years, but I know it would be in the hundreds. And we've met them, and it's yeah. really something. And, and, uh, and also, yeah, it's Open Arms Pregnancy Clinic in, in Northridge. And then we also do, even this month, this, this Sunday was supposed to be the last Sunday that we bring back the baby bottles uh, with the change, you know, full of change, which, you know, if you've taken one of those and haven't brought them back, you can continue to bring them back uh, to the front desk. But, you know, now is the time to really redouble and triple our efforts in the support of, of places like Open Arms, because, I mean, not only, not, I mean, again, in California, is there going to be much difference, but what you're hearing is calls from, from the people who have no problem killing their children. Why should we expect anything less than the calls for violence against these clinics, which seek to do nothing but help people and afford options and give support and all these sorts of things? Uh, there have been calls for violence and vandalism against them, and so we can certainly pray that they'd be protected, and we can give of our time and volunteering and certainly of our resources in ways that they need it. But yeah, you know, Speaking of like these these evangelical leaders, you know, who are ma- making some sort of comments like I, la- I lament with the many though I'm though I'm pro-life, I lament with the many women who feel like a right was taken away from them and these sorts of things. And we shouldn't be quick to be triumphalistic or take a victory lap or something like that. And one of the comments I made was, you know, when Josiah the king came to power and tore down all the bales and asherim and ground them to powder and sprinkled the powder on the graves of the worshipers of Baal. I don't think he was offering grief counseling to the surviving idolaters. When, like, so Molech took a great hit on Friday. And when, when 
in 17 plus states, right, all the idols of Moloch get smashed. You know, I, I felt like if we're really going to be biblical about it, Second Chronicles 34, grinding things to powder, we should have taken the, the paper that Roe v. Wade was inscribed upon, lit it on fire, and sprinkled the ashes on Ruth Bader Ginsburg's grave. Yeah. Seriously, I, that's absolutely true. And it, it, it baffles me how anyone who claims to believe Scripture and, and know the Lord could, could want to uh, choke off the, the celebration on a day like that. Uh, it's definitely a time to celebrate. It's not, it's not that we've won the war, but we won no. an important battle. Yeah. We need to keep up the fight. And so one question came in that just says, how do I talk to my children and grandchildren about this stuff? You know, if they're getting wind of what just happened... How can I speak about these matters with them in a way that doesn't steal their innocence? You know, talking about yeah. murder, yeah. death, sex, these sorts of things. One of the difficult things about our culture is the culture itself steals the innocence of children at an age that is mind-blowingly young for me. Uh, certain things that I didn't know about till I was 9 or 10 years old, kids today are routinely and deliberately exposed to before they even reach kindergarten. So, in all likelihood, your grandchildren's innocence, as you, as you wish it would be, has already been taken from them. And there's no blanket answer to that question because it depends on the child. It depends on, on you know, what questions the child is a- asking. My policy with my own kids and also with my grandkids is to answer the questions they ask. Mm-hmm. It's not my job to introduce them to ideas they haven't pondered. But if they're asking questions, I answer them honestly. So. Yeah. Sheldon, you've got one back there. Good morning, uh, Mike and Phil. Hey. Um, my question is uh, from Ephesians chapter 4 uh, about coarse jesting. Two-part question. One is, what is it? What does it look like? And the second part is, you know, I can, I can say, oh, I'm not like that. What is the heart behind coarse jesting? What, what are the thoughts, beliefs, attitudes that tempt us in, in that sense? Yeah, that is a really good question. And in fact, I have a, a whole message on that subject that I did at the Shepherds Conference maybe 10 years ago from that very passage. And um, uh, one of the things I point out in that context, uh, the Apostle Paul is talking about love and what genuine Christ-like love is compared to worldly concepts of love. And one of the things he mentions is coarse jesting. So, so why is it in this context, I ask? And, and uh, I think the obvious answer is this is one of the badges of worldly camaraderie and fellowship. You, you get a bunch of young, worldly-minded young men together, and they're going to use bad language and tell dirty jokes, and that's their idea of expressing camaraderie and fellowship. But it's a corruption of the idea of love, and that's the point Paul is making there that Christ-like love is not like that. It's pure, and, and uh, it avoids, you know, trashy topics and, and questionable words. And uh, it's been a tendency among evangelicals, I think, of the past. Well, there have been two waves of this. This came up maybe 15 years ago, and it's come up again in recent years. Well, the Bible doesn't give a list of forbidden words. No, but your mom could give them to you if you... You know, my, my mom knew which words were forbidden. And uh, how she knew that, I don't know. But it was, a, it was a pretty clear-cut list of things that I would get smacked for if I said. And those are the, those are the things Paul is, uh, is talking about there. He doesn't have to give a list because we all know that. And, and then the, the question comes up, yeah, but here's a word that means this bad thing that I can use in polite company and nobody cringes. But if I use the four-letter version of that, then everybody says that's a bad word. Who arbitrarily decides? And the answer is society does, or it always has. And one of the severe corruptions in our generation is that because of the way bad language is so routinely used in popular entertainment and all that, uh, people have become so accustomed to that that there are literally people in our generation who just, they talk that way without even thinking. And some of them, sometimes they, they get converted, they come into the church. Those are hard habits to break. And Paul is dealing with a similar 
cultural phenomenon, I think, where uh, people in, in uh, Ephesus and Corinth and these Greek cultures like that had words that were taboo in polite society, but they were so accustomed to using it that sometimes even in the church, this sort of coarse jesting and bad language would flourish. My counsel is if you're really confused about this and you're not sure what's appropriate and what's not, befriend one of the kindest, oldest women in our group and hang around her. She'll let you know when you're out of line. <laughs> yeah, I think, I think a lot of it in our culture has to do with sexual innuendo, right? And so there's always this sort of like, you know, nudge, nudge, wink, wink. At or other some, bodily functions, yeah, too. Yeah, right. Scatological right. type, you know. I guess that's funny, um, you know. But the, Even the, the mention of it is funny, right? The but the the com the I mean, like the context: in, immorality, impurity, or greed. And so those are the actions. But then they're saying, well, let's not even talk in a way that would be consistent with committing those actions. And then the, you know, the second question is: okay, maybe I'm good at bridling my coarse jesting, but maybe it's maybe it's in my heart. And, uh, and that's the question that we always have to answer. You know, it's not just that the, the outward commands are to be obeyed, but if you have a desire to disobey, you know, your heart is wrong and you need forgiveness for that. And so, you, you know, if you find those things constantly popping up in your mind, even though you know, oh, but I don't, I shouldn't say that, you know, because I'll be looked down upon or because it's just because God would be displeased with it. Nevertheless, if it's arising in your heart, you ask, you know, why is it that my heart so naturally brings forth thoughts that way? What am I minding, right? What is my mind set on? Is my mind set on the things of the spirit or the things of the flesh? The mind set on the the flesh is, is death, but the mindset on the spirit is life and peace, right? Dwell on the praiseworthy things, not the things that are base and, and impure. And so if your mind is filled with truth, with loveliness, with, with scripture, with the character of God, with the glories of the gospel, those are going to be the things that come out of your mouth and out of your heart. Um, but if your mind is filled with the, the baseness of contemporary culture, uh, then those are the things that are going to arise in your heart. And so you mortify sin really at the, at the desire level, at the heart level, and not just at the, uh, the hand level or the tongue level. Yeah, one of the arguments you will inevitably get when you, when you try to make this point or teach people these principles is, yeah, but the Bible itself has some expressions that, are, that seem to breach the rule we're making. Paul uses the word for dung in Philippians chapter 3, and in Galatians, he says to these guys who are enthralled with the idea of circumcision that they should go even further, basically, and castrate themselves. And then there are some passages in the Old Testament where some, some pretty <clears throat> candid language is used. The thing is, those are extraordinary circumstances even in Scripture, and there's always a reason why that sort of very potent language is used. When Paul uses the word for dung, for example, he doesn't, he doesn't choose... There were, there were worse words than the, ones, than the one he used that he could have chosen. He doesn't choose the worst words. He's trying to make a valid point about this concept, and it has a legitimate point. He's not just going for shock value. And that's the case every time you find anything like that in Scripture. And notice, Scripture is not peppered with stuff like that. It's always the guy who wants to talk like that all the time who points out those selected places in Scripture and says that justifies his filthiness. It doesn't. John. Yes, my question is, and, and this has to do with a proper sort of biblical response. This is a situation where um, I was involved in where someone who is a part of a religious organization, which names are not necessary, um, who was a pastor who obviously was connected to this organization and spoke at a, an event on yesterday. And the position that he said the Bible takes is that of free will and free choice, right? And so he was disheartened by the actual, actual position of the court because he said that there is some way, there's some inconsistency with taking a right way, rights obviously given by God himself. The response, and, and this even goes beyond um, legalities because I think Roe versus Wade was a wrongly decided case because it created or tried to amend the Constitution in a way um, that wasn't proper, right? You know, what I said to them is that, um, and, and they disagreed and, and 
quite frankly, most people actually disagree with the position that I had, that there is anywhere in the Bible that says it's wrong. Even though I did give passages and I, and I almost unfortunately stood alone in the position, even outside of the legalities, but I wanted to see whether or not there was a response that you would give, and, I, and I've heard some of the things that you've said already, when you're dealing specifically with people, and oftentimes it's contextual issues that they've taken things out of context, but another believer um, who claims to follow the Bible, but obviously is misquoting, and they were giving it to a, it was a sort of a woman's event, but uh, they took the position that it was biblically wrong in terms of what was decided. So I just wanted to see what would be more of a, a, a strong response, and the second part of it, as uh, the God, you know, in Ephesians 4, you know, there's a really importance of the Bible uh, as believers that we are one. So God talks about the oneness, and that is evident as to who he is. But when we have the division within the body of Christ, right, what are we supposed to do so that we get past this? Because obviously we know that there are reasons in the Bible where um, this type of behavior among the body of Christ is wrong. So I sure. know that was a really big question and narrative, but hopefully you understand what, where I was coming from. Yeah, yeah. Well, I mean, the first thing that I want to say is that the body of Christ is much smaller than many of us think. And that the, the visible church, the people who are in churches and who call themselves Christians and who read the Bible and pray and name the name of Christ... There's no indication that they are genuinely saved. And I frankly think that one of the clearest evidences of a darkened heart and a depraved mind is the inability to judge and discern that abortion is among the most flagrant possible kind of offenses to the God of the Bible. To, To murder mercilessly the, defen- the most defenseless, those without a voice at all, with no capability to speak up for themselves, is such an attack upon the image of God that it's, it amazes me that we are not in ashes already. And so, frankly, I don't think there is that much disagreement within the body of Christ on this issue. I think the body of Christ is defined by Uh, knowledge of Christ, Holy Spirit indwelling, and a mind controlled by the Scriptures, and union to Christ and and a mind controlled by the Scriptures and the Spirit uh, indwelling a person, I think keeps them from uh, insisting upon such a blasphemous and odious position. So I would question the salvation of somebody who says that, you know, abortion is permissible and should be legal or these sorts of things. As to the Bible passages, I mean, there, there are just so many. You know, when, when the twins are struggling within Rachel in Genesis 25, they're called banim, children, sons, the same word for children or sons that uh, is spoken of, of, of people outside, children outside of the womb. When John the Baptist, you know, leaps in Elizabeth's womb at the presence of Mary because Jesus is in Mary's womb, he's called a brephos, uh, which is the word for baby, which is the same word that is spoken of as of Jesus in a chapter later when he's wrapped in swaddling cloths. First Peter 2, 2 says, like newborn babies, that is brephos, you know, long for the pure milk of the word. And so the, the word for children inside the womb is the same as the word for children outside the womb. And so this canard that people talk about, you know, well, it's not a child, it's a fetus or it's a clump of cells, just has no, no place uh, in the scriptures. But then, I mean, the first, pa- first passage that my mind leapt to is Exodus 21, 22 and following, which says, if men struggle with each other and strike a woman with child so that she gives birth prematurely, yet there is no injury he shall surely be fined as the woman's husband may demand of him, and he shall pay the judges to side. But if there's any further injury, then you shall appoint as a penalty life for life, eye for eye, tooth for tooth, hand for hand, foot for foot, burn for burn, wound for wound, bruise for bruise. Why mention a woman with child, a pregnant woman, unless embraced within the category 
if there is no injury, is meant no injury to the wife or to the child, to the mother or to the child, right? In, if there is no injury to the mother or the child, then there's a fine, and that's fine. But if there is further in injury to the mother or to the child, then lex talionis, then life for life. There is the, the, the life of the child explicitly named. There, it is life in the womb, and it is under the protection of, the, the, of capital punishment. If you take the life, and this is interesting because obviously th this speaks about if men struggle with one another and strike a woman, that seems almost inadvertent, right? And so this is an in inadvertent injury that comes to a pregnant woman and her, let's say her child dies, life for life. That man is to be put to death. Normally, when there is an inadvertent killing, the Bible distinguishes inadvertent killing from murder, and they call it manslaughter. There's somebody called a manslayer. And a manslayer, according to Numbers, I think it's 25, I forget, is allowed to flee to a city of refuge so that he might not be the victim of a crime of passion of the person whose life that he, that he took. So uh, um, um, somebody who's involuntarily harmed somebody unto their death is actually not prescribed capital punishment. He's prescribed the city of refuge where he can flee, you know, reprisal. Here, where the, the, the life is even, even uh, here where the life is the life of the child, of the unborn child, the, the um, penalty is heightened now because of the child is ex exceptionally defenseless. When that child is harmed, it's not just, well, you could flee to a city and be protected because you're a manslayer. No, it's you suffer capital punishment, or if there was a harm to the mother or the child, Less than that, you know, a withered hand, then you have your hand removed. So Genesis 25, Exodus 21, Luke 1, th there are so many others. I mean, you, you, Psalm 139, the, the, you formed me in my mother's womb, and so on. So that, those are my responses. You got anything there? Yeah, no, that's good. And uh, I think that answers the bulk of your question, but I wanted to address a couple of other layers. One is the, the call for unity the, uh, in Scripture has to be interpreted in a light where you balance that with the repeated instructions to, to Christians not to recognize as fellow believers people who come with a twisted or corrupted gospel. If they have the wrong Christ or the wrong gospel, we're not to have anything to do with them. In Galatians 1, Paul says, even if it's an angel coming to you with a different message, don't receive them. And then in Second John, the Apostle John says, if someone comes with teaching that is contrary to what we've received from Christ, and he's talking there about, obviously, important gospel truths, then he says, you don't, don't invite him into your house, don't even give him a greeting. He's saying, don't honor him as a brother, don't, don't receive him. He's not saying be unpolite or unfriendly to them, but you don't have to recognize someone like that as a brother. And I think one of the one of the things that has so corrupted the church in our generation is this tendency for people to think anybody who professes to be a Christian, I'm obliged to receive him or her as a brother or sister in Christ. And Scripture is pretty clear that that is not the case, but we are to be on the lookout and resistant to anybody who comes with a twisted gospel. And in the first part of your question, you mentioned that this group, which you didn't name, and I'm not going to speculate on who it is, because there's so many who fit that category where they have, they have elevated the idea of human free will mm. above the law of God even. And uh, that is a serious corruption of Christianity. And as common as it is, I would say it, it usually leads people outside the boundaries of the true faith. And Scripture simply does exalt the idea of human free will to that degree. And if I, you asked, what answer would you give? If I had a, if I encountered a group like that, where they, they firmly believe that human free will is the, the very essence of religious truth, I give them a copy of uh, Spurgeon's sermon called Free Will, a Slave, where he points out that Scripture says repeatedly that our wills are enslaved to sin, that we're dead in trespasses and sin. And and we can't avoid sin in our own lives and our own hearts. And that's why we need a Savior. And if, if they're embracing an idea that runs counter to that, the idea that, well, I have free will, so I can do what I choose, and I can even save myself if I'm good enough, 
that's not Christianity, and, yeah. and it, needs, it needs to be confronted at that level. I would say the problems with the group you described are probably much deeper than just the issue of, yeah. of abortion. It probably goes to the heart of the gospel itself. And I wanted to say something there, too. You know, the, yeah, in Scripture, free will is something that is lamented. It's, it's something that is, demonst- is demonstratively a problem for humanity and, and not something that is exalted as some sort of great gift. God loved us so much that he gave us free choice. No, the, the, the free, we, we, by what we mean by free choice is I'm free to do as I please, right? I'm, I'm free to pick up my, my tumbler. I'm free to put it back down. That, that's obviously true. Mankind is free to make choices. But apart from the Spirit of God having regenerated us, mankind is not free to make the right choices. Our wills are enslaved. We, we are physically capable of doing the right thing, but we're morally incapable of doing the right thing. We suppress the truth in unrighteousness so that when we are given the free choice to do as our heart desires, we corrupt the world. <laughs> we, we kill one another. We steal from one another. We, we, we burn cities down and we, and we harm one another. We curse at one another. We jest coarsely, right? When the, when the human's will is given free reign, nothing but death and destruction result. And so to speak of free will as if it's this cardinal virtue of Christianity is to wholly misunderstand Christianity. And that relates to the notion that I saw something very similar Somebody say that, make, make that very argument. And you, you run around and you hear people, this is my choice. It's my choice. It's a woman's choice to do what she pleases with her own body. It's a choice that has to be made between a woman and her health care provider. When, if you guys hear that, that question, that, that argument made, you ask the question, choice to do what? Free to choose what? Because nobody wants to say, they, they speak of choice as if it's this, this untainted virtue. And they don't, it's a euphemism because what they're saying is a woman is free to hire a hitman to rip her child apart limb from limb or suck it out through a vacuum or inject poison into its, into its brain so that it, it, it dies, to, to burn a, a defenseless little baby with saline solution so that it comes out, you know, charred and disgusting, you know. This is the choice that you're getting to make. I don't have the choice to, if you present an inconvenience to me, to come and cut your head off or to rip your limbs apart or to burn you with acid, right? That's not my choice. Why? Because you're an image bearer of God. And for me to do something like that to you is to deface the image of God in you and to court the judgment of God. If a man sheds a man's blood, by man his blood shall be shed right? So choose to do what? We are not free to choose to drive 150 miles an hour on the freeway. We are not free to choose to decapitate people who are inconvenient to us. We are not free to take somebody's resources when, we don't, when they don't belong to us because they would serve us well and that person has plenty already. There are, plenty, there are millions of things we are not free to choose to do. Murder should always be one of those. All right, another question that came in was, it had to do with something, well, we've addressed this sometimes before, but I feel like it, the fact that it keeps coming in is, is good uh, and needs for, for addressing. It says, based on 1 Corinthians 5, which tells us not to eat with one who, you know, professes Christ and yet continues in open sin, how should parents interact with adult children who are fornicating or living with a significant other? or who live a homosexual or transgender lifestyle? How do we respond to invitations for holidays, birthdays, weddings, and so on? Does our response depend on whether they're professing believers? I'll answer the last part of that first. Yes, the response does depend on whether they're professing believers or not, because if they are professing to be believers and yet living in open sin, that makes the importance of, of drawing a clear line both in your, the way you confront your own offspring and their sin, but also for people who observe what's going on. You, you, you don't want to give the impression, uh, and this is Paul's point in 1 Corinthians 5, you don't want to give the public impression that this person who's living in open sin is somehow embraced by you as a, a brother or a sister in Christ. However, when it's family, I think it poses a, a whole different kind of question. Uh, it would take a lot for me to 
dis, so disfellowship one of my own children that I would tell him, you can't even come and have Thanksgiving dinner with us. I wouldn't invite them to participate in any kind. If they were living in open sin, let's say uh, living, you know, in, in a conjugal relationship where they're not married or living a homosexual lifestyle openly or any of that, I wouldn't invite them to participate in, a, you know, our family devotions and pretend that they are their brothers and sisters participating. But I would want them to be there. I would want them to hear the prayer. I would want them to hear the gospel, and I would want to press on their conscience the importance of that. So there's a delicate balance to be, to be kept between your responsibility as a parent to love that child and continually confront them and plead with them and expose them to spiritual truth. You'd want to maintain enough of a relationship that you can do that and not always be hostile but on the other hand, you don't want to seem either to the child himself or to the public watching as if you give approval to this sinful lifestyle. And so I think each situation probably poses a different set of questions. People ask me this all the time, and I always ask probing questions about, you know, what's going on here? Is it, is it that your son, you know, lives out of state and he wants to bring a woman who he's not married to? And, and spend the night with her in your house, I would say obviously no to that, because then you're countenancing an act of sin. But say you've got, you've got a relative who lives with someone they're not married to, and, and uh, they want to join a family reunion or a funeral, a funeral dinner or, or something like that, I would say that's not necessarily a violation of, of what Paul is saying there in 1 Corinthians Five. What he's saying is you just don't want to give the world the impression that this openly sinning person is a brother in good standing in the church. Yeah. I mean, I think if it's a, if it's a professing believer, it's a different stand, standard. You know, the whole point is, you know, we can't, we can't remove ourselves from the association of every immoral person, covetous person, swindler, idolater, because then you'd have to go out of the world, text says, Right. So if this is a, a, an unbelieving child who professes to be an unbeliever and is living the way an unbeliever would, then I think that the principles that guide you there are, I'm not going to do anything that celebrates sin, so I'm not coming to their wedding if it's a, you know, a homosexual couple. Um, I, you know, I'm, I'm not going to, you know, I, personally, I'm not going to use somebody's preferred pronouns or call them by a name that is contrary to the gender that they were assigned, right? Uh, I'm, if, if it's my child, God forbid, right? If it's my child that, that says, well, you know, I want to be called this name, which is obviously a female name and I'm a male, I'm simply not going to oblige that because I'm not going to, um, I'm not going to help them celebrate, entrench them in their delusion that they can do anything to change their gender. You know, but short of that, right, so if I'm not going to celebrate sin or encourage delusion, I'm going to treat an unbelieving child the way that I would treat any unbeliever, and, and, and more so because he's my own child, with the kind of love that does not make soft on sin, does not neglect it, does not, I mean, they're going to hear from me, you know, you know, you can't, you can't continue this way. The judgment of God hangs over your head for this. You, you will have to stand a, a trial at law one day before the judge of all the earth. And, and I'm not a good father if I sit here and pretend that that's not coming. But I, I need to cultivate a relationship in which that conversation could take place. If they're a believer and they're involved in these things, and particularly if they're a believer who has been formally disciplined out of the church. I think that raises it to a whole, a whole new level. If, if they're a professing believer who has been, conf- who's been a, in a pattern of sin, has been confronted by a church in good standing, and has refused the calls to repentance such that they've been put out of the church, steps one, two, three, and four, then I really think that you don't eat with such a one. Different folks would maybe disagree on that level, but if you're, if you're a, a professing believer who's been put out of a church, my, my interaction with you, no matter who you are, is going to be fairly limited to, have you repented yet? Has the Lord made his hand heavy upon your conscience yet? Have you decided to turn from this? There will be help for you when you do. We are so eager to have you back. But until then, um, no, I, I think that, that the admonition of that passage is, 
you, you don't have, you don't even eat with such a one. Short of having being expelled from church discipline, I, you know, I think that Phil's comments are sound. Where you, you know, you do everything you can to not celebrate sin, not encourage the delusion that they're a believer to try to bring uh, the truth to bear. Sheldon, you got one back there? Thank you, Pastor Field, Pastor Mike. My question is, what is the relationship with the phrase, you and your household will be saved, as in Acts eleven fourteen, and how does that relate to 1 Corinthians seven fourteen, where the believing spouse is sanctified, where the believing spouse sanctifies the unbelieving spouse. Right. That's a fairly simple thing, I think. In Acts, uh, when he says, believe on the Lord Jesus Christ, you and your household will be saved, it simply means everyone in your household who does believe in the Lord Jesus Christ is going to be saved. This is a promise that if you believe in the Lord Jesus, you will be saved. That promise extends to the entire household, your whole household, and you want to see that. So that's the context of, of that passage. The First Corinthians 7 one is talking about, he's answering the question of, what if you've got a, a family where the wife now has been converted, but the husband's still a pagan? Should she divorce him? Should she stay married to him? What's her duty? How does God view that marriage? Because it's, a, it's an unequal yoke between a believer and an unbeliever. And Paul says the marriage itself is sanctified by by the fact that one member is a believer. God's grace extends to the couple in a, in a special way, but it doesn't mean that the unbelieving spouse can be saved by the faith of, of the believing spouse. So only, only those who are saved, and, and that goes back to the Acts passage, uh, only those who believe are saved. Yeah, I think that's good. And Jesus said that in several ways too. In uh, John 3, if you believe you'll be saved, but those who don't believe are still under the condemnation of God. So that applies within a household like it does anywhere else. But uh, what Paul is saying in 1 Corinthians 7 is to ease the mind of the person who, who worried if, because she was a believer and her husband was not, does this make my marriage an abomination to God? And, and Paul is saying, no, it doesn't. I think that's sufficient. Yeah, good. Question from ones that came in. We've talked uh, a little while about the doctrine of uh, eternal functional subordination. It's a, a Trinitarian question that we've addressed several times, which has to do with whether Christ's submission to the Father, un- universally granted to be during his incarnation when he adds a human nature and submits to the Father, does it also extend back to eternity past before he took on a human nature? Is submission so identical to the, com- the content of being son that Christ is eternally submissive? And Phil and I have both answered that by saying no. Christ was not eternally submissive because submission requires two wills and two wills requires two natures and there's only one nature in the Godhead. But the question has come in, how significant of an error is the doctrine of the eternal functional subordination of the Son? Is it like differences on rapture timing or millennial views where sound believers can disagree? Or is it more like the deity of Christ or penal substitutionary atonement? Or is it somewhere in between? Probably somewhere in between. I I think it'd be hard for me to rank those in, in order of gravity. In each case, I think those are important issues. And and vital to get right in the sense that if you want healthy theology, you need to get these things right. I wouldn't say that any of... You could be wrong on the timing of the rapture. You could be wrong on eternal functional subordination. What was the other one? Oh, oh, substitutionary atonement. That's a bit more serious because I think it goes directly to how we understand the gospel working. But let's take those other two errors and say both of them have pernicious tendencies that that concern me. I think they're, they're, they're serious errors in the sense that they pose a lot of danger down the line to the rest of your theological beliefs. If you believe that the Son is eternally subordinate to the Father, it's tantamount to saying that there are, there's more than one nature in the, in the Godhead, that the Son and the Father have separate wills and therefore separate natures, and while that may you may you may still remain within the broad boundaries of orthodoxy 
and be confused about this or hold that view or whatever, I think if you teach that view, it's inevitable that within a generation or two, the people you influence are going to go right into heresy. So I think it's a, it's a view that points towards heresy, but I wouldn't automatically... In fact, I have friends, good friends who I respect, uh, people I've learned things from on other areas of theology who hold to this eternal functional subordination or a version of that. It goes by several names. And I, I vehemently disagree with their position on this, but I wouldn't write them off as unbelievers. Yeah, I think that that's right. I don't want to belabor it, but yeah, it's, it's, a, it's a view that if consistently held would, would be heresy, right? But, you know, so is the doctrine of synergism in a Wesleyan-Arminian uh, system where, you know, God and man cooperate in regeneration where, you know, the, the workings of the Spirit, the general workings of the Spirit revive the human will to a place sort of where it was with Adam, where you're free to choose right or wrong. And then, you know, if you choose right, you've cooperated with grace and now you've been saved. I mean, that, that doctrine of itself, if it were consistent with itself, would be a denial of the, the gospel of salvation by grace alone. And yet, because those who hold the doctrine of synergism vehemently affirm their commitment to the doctrine of salvation by grace alone, and they define that grace differently, you know, they, it's a, they're in a manner saved by their inconsistency. And I think folks with, with EFS, it's the same way. There is, they, they actually will say, no, I believe there's one will and one nature in the Godhead, but that submission can still happen uh, in that scenario. And I'm going to say, well, that's inconsistent. That's not respecting the definitions of will and nature and person and submission. But it's really hard to say, well, you're an Arian or you're a tritheist when they openly reject Arianism and tritheism as stated. And so I would say consistently, if you were to hold it consistently, it would lead to heresy. But in and of itself, it's not. And, and I think it is a serious error. I don't think we should hold it. I think we should abandon it. Um, and yet I would, I would rank it beneath a denial of penal substitution or, or the deity of Christ. Those are clear uh, out-of-bounds markers. Yeah, let me say one other thing about that too. I, I think the, the popularity of that view today is only possible because evangelicals ignored careful teaching in, in all kinds of doctrine, but specifically Trinitarian doctrine, for probably more than a century. The, the doctrine of the Trinity was assumed and therefore neglected. The assumption is, well, we're all Trinitarians, we all get that, so, and it's a hard doctrine to understand, so preachers passed over it, and now you've got several generations uh, who are ignorant about the historical discussions of these issues. And what we need now is more careful study and, uh, and measured debate. And um, part of my fear about this whole debate is that people on both sides have, have jumped directly to DEFCON 1 and they're, they're condemning each other where uh, it would be, I think, good to have a healthy and extended debate on the subject that would be at a level that all evangelicals could follow and understand. I think we could get it sorted out, but right now there's more yelling and accusing than there is actual discussion and debate. Yeah. If you're, again, if you're interested on this, you know, I, we've recommended in the past a, a book called the Son, Who, the Son Who Learned Obedience by a guy named Glenn Butner, and then um, the book Simply Trinity by Matthew Barrett. Uh, especially that one would give you a really great overview of where we went wrong uh, in taking a U-turn from the, the classical Trinitarianism, uh, embracing the categories and the metaphysics of the Enlightenment, and, uh, and, and kind of running into this bad course. You know, I kind of liken it, I think actually Matthew Barrett does this too in that book, but I liken it to Back to the Future 2, where you know, old Biff steals the almanac and gives it to young Biff in 1955. And then when Doc and Marty go back to 1985, it's this total alternate universe. And they're in the basement and Marty and Doc are trying to figure out what they got to do. And he says, we got to go back to 20, 
you know, 15 and give and, and steal the almanac. And Doc says, we can't do that because if we travel ahead uh, into the future in this reality, we're going to get the future of this reality. What we have to do is go back to 1955, steal the almanac from old Biff, giving it to new Biff, and then come back to 1985. It's a little bit like that. I the, didn't follow any of that. I, by the book, the, the, enlight, the Enlightenment... The enlightenment is when we veered off course into an alternate Trinitarian reality. And then we went forward and we found ourselves in a space where we're saying things that sound ridiculous, right? But it's not the reality that we know. And if we were to just move forward, it's going to be a problem. We have to go back to where the thing, where metaphysics went off the rails at the enlightenment in order to get back to the real 1985. Anyway, Back to the Future is a great movie. Um, <laughs> But along those lines, another question came in. Uh, with with the, the burgeoning reemphasis on classical theism's understanding of the attributes of God and his triunity comes a lot of appreciation for Thomas Aquinas, who, known as a poster child for Roman Catholic theology. It is an embrace of classical theism, an embrace of Thomas Aquinas, or what is called Thomism? And if so, is an embrace of Thomas and Thomism an embrace of Roman Catholic theology? Some are warning against the push for Trinitarian orthodoxy by saying it blurs the lines with Catholicism. Yeah, that's the level to which this debate has descended, and, and uh, it's, it's unfortunate. I, I'm not a Thomist. I, I, there are many things about Thomas Aquinas that I deplore, and, I, and I, I've never been a fan of his. And in fact, I spent part of the 90s in some of these theological discussions on the Internet uh, attacking some some of the errors of Aquinas. And yet, he wasn't wrong about everything. And it's called classical theism because it's, it's classical, actually, and it existed before Thomas. He taught theology proper, the doctrine of God, in a way that was maybe more thorough and, and more clear than some of his predecessors. So people do go back to him. The Reformers went back to him. The Reformers didn't write off everything he taught. And I'm, I'm wary of that attitude where, oh, because this is Thomas Aquinas and he was a Catholic, we have to reject everything he said. That's a dangerous attitude as well. And in fact, that was exactly the, if, if you've listened to my series that I did 30 years ago on uh, the history of heresy, that was, the, that was the attitude that drove the Socinians. They thought not only is Roman Catholicism wrong on soteriology, everything Catholic needs to be jettisoned. And so they literally jettisoned everything, the deity of Christ, the miracles of Scripture. That's where theological liberalism comes from. Uh, Socinian, the Socinian variety, at least, grew out of the Protestant Reformation from people who were overzealous in wanting to dump everything that had any hint of Catholicity. And, and by that, I mean small-c Catholicity. That word Catholic means universal. And there are certain truths that Christians universally have always accepted, starting with a lot of our Trinitarian doctrine. Uh, so I think you have to be very careful about jettisoning an idea just because you can read it on the pages of, you know, Thomas Aquinas's Summum Theologica, whatever. Yeah, Summa Theologica. Yeah, the, the you know, the, there are going to be a lot of things that Thomas Aquinas affirmed that the church before him affirmed, that Augustine affirmed, that, uh, you know, Chrysostom affirmed, that other, you know, the church fathers, Gregory of Nyssa, Gregory of Nazianzus affirms. Part of the, the classical theism idea is that it is what the church has taught classically on these doctrines. And so, to affirm what Augustine affirms about the Trinity, though it looks a lot like what Thomas affirms isn't Thomism. <laughs> That's an anachronism. It's, a, it's Augustinianism, right, which Thomas himself embraced. And so you can't just play the, the association game. Another observation that I make in this discussion is, you know, it, Catholics, right, they go wrong on their doctrine of tradition, right? They, they say that the magisterium and Scripture are equally ultimate authorities. So we have to embrace you know, the, the ex-cathedra declarations of the popes and the councils as um, 
as inspired, as inerrant word of God, just as much as we embrace Scripture. That's false, right? That we, don't, we don't hold that tr- Scripture and tradition are equally ultimate authorities. Scripture is the sole norming norm which cannot be normed, right? The councils and the creeds and the confessions are norms of the Christian faith, but which are all normed by Scripture. Now, but, it, it, but interestingly, right, the Catholics' adherence to the notion that whatever the councils say, we have to preserve inviolable as if it were Scripture, helps them in this particular area of Trinitarianism, cla- cl- you know, classical theology proper, and Christology, because they're saying, well, whatever the council said was true about the Trinity and, and Christ, well, that's what we have to hold. And so in some cases, Catholics have done a better job of preserving the biblical doctrine of God and Christ as articulated through the creeds and the patristics than evangelicals have done, because though we are right to say tradition does not bind us like the scripture does, what that's done is it's allowed us to be unmoored from tradition more than is warranted in this case, and we've gone ahead and done our own thing and we've messed up the whole train. And so don't be surprised if in some cases Catholic teachers are teaching on the Trinity and Christ in ways that are more faithful to the scriptures on this particular issue. Does that mean Catholics are saved? No, it does not. We don't have to only confess that God is triune and that Christ is divine and human. We have to confess that the gospel is justification by faith alone, apart from works of the law, apart from any works at all. They reject that. There's a lot that you can get right and still be damned. And that's, that's the, the, the severity, behold, the kindness and the severity of God that, that, that shows us it's not just a confession that is proper to the person of Christ, to the person of the Trinity, but also to the gospel of God. That, but I can appreciate the fact that a particular teacher gets something right, even if they're not a genuine brother in the Lord. Let me say one other thing in this, uh, in this same vein. Occasionally you hear people say... They'll respond to an idea by saying, no, 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 that comes from Greek philosophy, and therefore it's wrong, because Scripture uh, is Hebrew, and true Christianity has Hebrew roots rather than Greek. When you hear somebody say that, your, your antenna should go up and, and be skeptical. That's a bad argument. And Paul, who called himself a Hebrew of the Hebrews, often quoted Greek philosophers, Greek poets to make points. He was not that wary of, uh, of Greek sources, uh, and one of, the, one of the complaints you hear about Thomas Aquinas is he borrowed, for example, from Aristotle, Aristotle's taxonomy of causation, to explain how God can be sovereign, and his decree causes, it, it's the original cause of everything that happens, and yet God is not blameworthy for every evil that happens, because you have different levels of causation. There's the original cause, there's the uh, proximate cause or the immediate cause, the efficient cause, and uh, you can't explain, you can't answer the, the question of how is it that God is sovereign and yet he, he's not to blame for evil. It's pretty hard to answer that question without an appeal to the taxonomy of causation that, or, or something very similar to what Aristotle explained, and that's what Aquinas does. I think that's one of the best sections of Aquinas's reasoning, and yet you'll have people today who just want to throw that out because he goes back to Aristotle, and Greek philosophy has no place in explaining Christian theology, and I think that's a dangerous approach to take because what it ultimately does is make people embrace illogic rather than sound reason. And uh, while Scripture isn't, isn't dependent on human logic, it doesn't rise, the truth of Scripture doesn't rise from human logic, it's not inconsistent with logic, because if it was, it would be nonsense. Yeah, I like to say faith is not irrational. It's supra-rational at times. It's above reason, uh, but it's certainly not, not beneath reason. It's not less than rational. Uh, you're welcome to an irrational faith. Uh, that's, that's not the faith that that we subscribe to. We've we got time for probably two more. One is, I, li- I like this one. I recently heard a seasoned saint comment that the favorable outcome she'd experienced after a serious crisis was a result of so many people praying for her. Is God more influenced to answer prayer if there are more people praying? How does that intersect with his sovereignty? Go ahead, answer it. Well, <clears throat> 
Well, I, I would say that the whole, the whole point of prayer is not to influence God. Luther once said, or I don't know if it was Luther or somebody else, said prayer is not overcoming the reluctance of God. It is laying hold of his willingness. And, and so it's not the case that God is genuinely changed in his purpose or his mind because enough Christians prayed. Like, oh, well, I guess, you know, if 600 million of them are asking for this, then I guess I got to do it. Not, not at all. God ordains the end from the beginning. He has ordained to do what he is going to do, and he'll never not do that. However, he has ordained those ends to be accomplished by means. And one of the principal means of God's doing anything in life is the prayers of his people. And so he ordains that your family member come to faith uh, by means of your praying for that family member and preaching the gospel to them. He ordains that a particular ailing saint, somebody who's got health issues, is relieved of those health ailments by means of the prayers of the saints. You know, wars rise up. We see the things going on with Ukraine, and we pray for the end of the violence. Roe v. Wade is overturned. We, we pray for the ending of unjust laws and court precedents, and we, we ask God to change things. That doesn't mean... He's like, all right, you know, enough people prayed, now we can overturn it, or now we can heal the person, or now we can save the person. It's simply that he's ordained our prayers to be the means of accomplishing his ends. Right, the effectual fervent prayer of a righteous man avails much, and what it avails ultimately is the glory of God. And the chief benefit of soliciting the prayers of, of many saints is that when God answers that prayer, his glory is magnified by the fact that more people are thankful and, and recognize that it was God who did this. And then here, the last question for now, although we had so many more good ones and ones we probably had asked at the back that uh, we'd be happy to answer personally. But this I thought was a good final question. It said, uh, recognizing that all Scripture is inspired and profitable... What portions of Scripture have you found most helpful to memorize? Whoa, that is a good one. I would say almost any of it. I mean, you, you, I, 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 have not, I have not tried to memorize all of the genealogies and stuff. Uh, the largest passage of Scripture I ever memorized was the book of Romans, and that was, I'd have to say, the most profitable memory exercise I ever did. It sticks with me to this day. The only thing disadvantageous about it is I memorized it in the King James Version. So if I'm trying to look up a verse, that's what comes to mind. I have to look it up that way. But yeah, I would say any, because it is all inspired by God and, and profitable, there's not a passage of Scripture that I would say, yeah, don't bother memorizing that. If you can memorize the whole thing, do. Yeah. But obviously there are passages of Scripture, too, that have more direct practical implications than others. And uh, I would say if you're struggling spiritually, you should gravitate to those. Memorize the book of Proverbs. Memorize uh, the Pauline epistles and things like that before you memorize, say, the book of Revelation or the Old Testament genealogies. It's going to have more direct, practical impact. But I've given my testimony how what brought me to Christ was a random reading from 1 Corinthians, the first three chapters, I just opened at random, and that is not where you'd point someone 17 years old with no, no background in gospel truth to say, read this and, and come to Christ, but that's what the Lord used, and yeah. uh, I think uh, it was Spurgeon who pointed out there's probably not a verse of Scripture anywhere that hasn't been used at hmm. some point to save a soul. Yeah. You know, uh, I, I would echo the, the book of Romans. It's just, it's the gospel presented in such tightly woven reasoning so that, you know, if you have that broad outline, I mean, even we heard Jorge talk about the righteousness of God defied the righteousness of God. Uh, what was it? Supplied. Supplied, and then the righteousness of God applied. applied, right? That was Phil's outline for the whole book of Romans, and, and Jorge's in jail preaching that message to the other inmates. And um, you know, if you hadn't heard his testimony a couple months back, I mean, that kind of a thing is so valuable because the content of the gospel is so rich. If you have that, that overview of, you know, chapter 1 to 320, right, the, all of mankind is shut up under sin, under the law, and then 321 to the end of uh, 5, justification by faith alone, 
and then 6 to 8, sanctification, and then 9 to 11, that excursus of God's faithfulness to His promises with respect to the plan of, of Israel and the nations, and then 12 to 16, that, that practical application. We're all one body in Christ. We, you know, we, we owe nothing to one another but the debt of love, Christian liberty, you know, the, the importance of the, the, you know, the gospel spreading to missionaries and loving, and loving one serving one another, right? That is an awesome blueprint for the Christian life, and so if, if you can if you can be told um, eight, you know, eight fifteen, right, and be able to say, you know, we ourselves testify, or the Spirit Himself testifies with our spirit that we are children of God, right? That's a that's a great exercise to be able to just say, give me a verse in Romans, and I can pull it up. But if if it was beyond just a single book, my counsel, one of the things that was most helpful to me, was to memorize what one uh, church and popular ministry calls fighter verses. And by that, they mean specific uh, truths and promises of God that are tailor-made to fight particular temptations. So, for example, uh, you, know, if you're a, you know, if you're a young man or an old man, uh, f- you know, fighting against the temptation of lust, what do you need? You need a promise that tells you that there is more satisfaction in purity than in impurity. And so the verse that I need to memorize when a temptation to lust comes to my heart is Matthew 5, 8. Blessed are the pure in heart, for they shall see God. And the implication is seeing God is so much more satisfying than seeing this impure image or whatever else or thinking this impure thought. You know, if, if you're attempted to being anxious, right, and worrying about something, you need to remember Matthew 6, which says, don't worry about these things, you know, that, that God is in control of. He clothes the, the lilies of the valley, the, the birds of the air get their food, and, and surely, you know, he'll, he'll care for his children. Uh, you're, you're worth more than many sparrows, right? Um, be anxious for nothing, but in everything by prayer and supplication with thanksgiving, make your requests known to God, and, and he will uh, guard your heart and mind with the peace of God that passes all understanding. I want to take, I want to mine the scriptures for particular promises and truths that fortify my soul in the face of temptation. I want to fight the, pro- the temptation to sinful pleasures with the promises of superior pleasures. And so a book that has been really helpful to me on that is a book that John Piper wrote called Battling Unbelief, where he basically does that. He takes, you know, I don't know, seven or eight particular sins, he dissects the sin biblically, and then provides several single passages which say, commit these to memory, and then when you're caught off guard with temptation, you're able to, to, to draw them as a sword from its sheath or a dagger, you know, from your, your hip so that you can plunge it into the dragon uh, of temptation. Uh, th- that's what it's about. Praise God, most of us have the Bible on our phone. We have, you know, ho- however many copies of it that are within reach. If we really need to look up a verse, you know, the, the Bible is there for us, and we're, we're so thankful for that. But what we, what we need in our hearts to be ready for at any moment is the, the subtle wiles of Satan's temptations. Those are inexplicable, and we're too apt to follow after them and fall into those temptations without much time passing at all, maybe even in the time, the amount of time that it would take to go get our Bibles or go open the, the Bible app on our phone and search the verse that we need. So if that word is hidden in our heart, we might, then, then it, it will be that we, we don't sin against him if we can bring those promises to bear on our temptations. Then as I say that, I'm reminded to plug the, uh, the Grace Life Women's event coming up in August, which is your word I've hidden in my heart that I've not sinned against you. It's on scripture memory and, and prayer and the spiritual disciplines. So ladies, uh, be aware of that since we're not going to meet for the next month. And with that, you shall close us in prayer. All right, let's pray. Lord, thank you for this group. Thank you for the fellowship that you enable us to enjoy in Christ. We thank you for the salvation that you've given us through him. May our lives glorify him and honor him in all that we do and say and think. And as we go about our lives this week, keep us grateful and focused on the riches of heaven and and the the blessing of fellowship with you. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. You have been listening to pastor and teacher Phil Johnson. For more information about the ministry of the Grace Life Pulpit, 
visit at www.thegracelifepulpit.com. Copyright by Phil Johnson. All rights reserved.